G'day, you're listening to the Big Breakdown Podcast with Chris Stafford and Harrison Marshall. Take it away, fellas. Hello and welcome along to Season 2 of the Big Breakdown Podcast, where in this season we are delving into the world of serial winning coaches and what traits that we can take and transition into the grassroots game. Uh, as always, I'm joined by Harrison Marshall. Uh, Harrison, how are you? How are you feeling about today? I'm good, I'm good. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to um, uh, an interesting conversation today. Um, I think you know, myself and you on the Masters, I think every, every bit of literature that we wrote, we... We seem to reference uh, the guests that we have coming on today, so it's uh, look. I'm I'm more than excited to to get to get to get talking yourself. Yeah, exactly the same. A uh, bit, bit, bit really, uh, really excited to get going. I think it's going to be uh, very beneficial for everyone listening. So today's guest is Professor Dr. John Lyle, uh, who's Professor of Sports Coaching at Leeds Beckett University. John first established uh, the first professional diploma in sports coaching and the first master's degree in sports coaching studies in the UK. He played a significant role in the development of sports coaching as an academic field of study and is published widely and is the author of the influential textbook, three influential textbooks, including Sports Coaching Concepts. He combines his role as an academic with uh, a role as a research consultant, collaborating with a number of universities and national sports agencies. John's academic experience is complemented by considerable personal experience as a coach, involvement in the determination of sports coaching policy in the UK and the engagement of delivering of high performance coach education and development. He's coached and played volleyball at international level, including the European Championships, Europe uh, European Championships and World University Games. He was also a professional soccer player uh, and he's joined us today just to, to chat about environments. Uh, John, it's great to have you on. Thank you very much. Looking forward to it. Glad to be here. Yeah, it's uh, it, like Harrison sort of alluded to at the start there. I, I really don't think there's been a, a bit of work I've made in my master's at university where I've not referenced uh, one of the articles uh, that you've written. So it's, it's a real pleasure to have you on. Just obviously, me and, jo- me and Harrison have read quite quite a, a few of your your papers or, uh, in the past. If you could just give us a bit of an overview of of your background, um, sort of de- developing on what I've sort of said in the intro there, and um, your your experiences as coaching and playing as well. Yeah, well, I, I have a, a reasonably extensive background as a participant and a performer. Um, and like many, moved from participating, uh, often because I wasn't one of the stars who was participating, um, and so moved slightly sideways into coaching, um, as many do in coaching, to, to remain involved as much as possible. Um, I was a, a PE teacher. For, for a, my wife reminds me for a very little time um, and then moved into higher education. And although at that time I was centrally involved in teacher education, physical education, but um, the our, uh, institution up in Edinburgh at the time um, decided to move into uh, sport coaching and or sports coaching as it was known. I tried to persuade people that it should be called sport coaching. But anyway, um, the institution decided to move into sport coaching and uh, I ended up with some responsibility for making that transition. Uh, and, uh, you know, largely as a, uh, having a, a significant background myself in it. Um, and that was many, many, I would say many moons ago, probably many decades ago. Um, and I've been working in 
studying and interested in sport coaching ever since. And and if you don't stop me, I just keep talking. So you probably should ask a question. <laughs> no, I think um, I think we're just getting wrapped up in just just listening to to your experiences and 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 listening to that journey that that you've kind of been on. Um, has there been like what are the so in that journey of, of of seeing that sport coaching grow and into into the academic that it is now, has there been any like key moments that you can that you can remember in terms of like well that I can I can feel that we've we've we're making success we're making headway in, in in spreading it to to a wider audience. Two things two things happened I think one is that the literature um, or, or and that first point has two bits to it but the literature suddenly expanded. And this was in the late, probably in the late 90s, early 2000s, that there was a sudden um, explosion in the literature. And that was accompanied by the beginnings of uh, sports-specific journals or coaching-specific journals. And as those became more um, available, of course, they became more writing. So more people were writing, more was being put into the to the, to the literature. Um, so I think that that was that suddenly there were avenues for people to write. There was more there was more material for people to study, and and that made the field bigger. I think another thing that was very significant was when I first started, the the number of postgraduate students was very limited. Uh, there were more in North America and, and and more I think in Eastern Europe and gradually in other Commonwealth, you know, the Australia, Canada, other Commonwealth countries. But we had relatively few postgraduate opportunities in the UK. Then the master's degrees began to appear. And I think the big difference was we started to get students who thought it was worth doing PhDs. And and if you like, it becomes complicated, but that, that was helped by the fact that we were getting more students and more undergraduate courses meant we needed more lecturers. So there was there were greater opportunities for for people to work in higher education. So there were more people doing PhDs and going in through that avenue. So from from not very many people working at that level in various institutions, postgraduate study became more more accepted, more the norm. And it, with the explosion, if you like, of uh, not an, it was maybe a soft explosion, but with with greater numbers of postgraduate students. Obviously, you then get more studies going on, more publications, and and people begin to do a wee bit more dissemination. So your expectations rise. So you know you begin to say, well, there is this information out there. We ought not to, in coach education or coach development or just coaching practice in general. We ought to be paying a bit more attention to that. Um, you know, we're not doing it just for the sake of doing it. We're hoping that it translates into practice in some way. And so I think those were the key moments. The suddenly the availability of avenues for for expansion. You know, you can't expand unless there's room to expand. So that the the, the journals and the publications gave us room for that. And then the higher education expansion of courses meant that we, you know, the number of staff who were engaged in studying coaching also exploded. With that comes postgraduate students, and suddenly we're a field that's quite sizable. And, and in many institutions, quite a quite an important department, you know, within within sport. Oh, I think it's you know it's 
You know, I noticed, I've been, I, you know, I, I was part of that journey with doing the master's degree at, at mm-hmm. Beckett, and um, you know, it was one of those things that at the time I remember finishing my um, undergraduate in sport and exercise science, the, uh, the the cool sport course to do, as as as, mm-hmm. as many would seem. Um, yeah, I got persuaded into doing it by by, by Chris and another guy from Leeds Beckett, Mike Ashford. So um, yeah, it's nice to be it's nice to be into that journey. So what in terms of so I guess you, you the idea that the practice is very much influenced by by the academics. Do you think how how much do you think those two can go in hand in hand? And do you think you know how well do you think they do do kind of link together? As I as I get to somewhere near the end of a journey, um, I you get to say things and you can be a bit more interventionist if you if you choose to be. I've recently made a conference presentation and 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 a recent online contribution to a conference at least in which i have to say one of my what i've identified i think is one of the limit one of our failings to date if i put it that way our collective failings um is to influence practice is to you know practice is going on in my view there's extremely good practice with extremely good practitioners coaches know what they're doing many many do it well some do it extremely well and we've also got good academics doing good academic work. The link between the two, I think, is something that we still need to work on. Um, the influence of of our academic work on coach education has been limited. That doesn't mean it's not there. It just means it's been a wee bit limited, particularly at the early stages. I don't. I think you know, master students and prof doc students and PhD students are au fait with the literature. They, they know what's going on and hopefully they'll take that into account in their practice. But the we have tended, I mean, if I'm, I am now being critical of the field in general, we have tended to go our own way a bit in academic studies. We have schools of, of, of study, domains, you know, where this group work on this area and th- this institution likes to work in this area. Um, you know, each each academic author has an area that you know you immediately know when somebody's writing something that what they'll be writing about. So I, I, I do think that simple questions like if we had, are we convinced that the work we are doing is work that is central to coaches' interests is a, a hard question to ask ourselves. We should be asking ourselves whether coaches are queuing up to get the findings from our studies or whether we're just writing papers for the sake of writing papers. Is coach education taking on board the findings of research? Perhaps not as much as we would like, but I don't think that's completely I don't think that's completely the fault of coach education. One, I think we've misinterpreted coach education a wee bit in its early stages. But also, are we are we writing papers that have findings that are immediately applicable? or at least not immediately applicable, but can be translated in some way into practice. So this whole area of translation of research into practice, both for practicing coaches and for uh, coach educators, coach developers, this is something that I think we, it's, it's not just its not just coaching, you know, teaching and other areas are, are also have this practice theory divide or at least tension. Um, and so we're no different in that, but that doesn't mean we haven't got to work at it. 
it's quite interesting because that was one, one of the motivations Harris and I had for for setting up season one of the podcast was around how we, we talked a lot about how we'd utilise the content that we'd learned on the Masters and how we'd applied it to our own environment and the, the value that we had from that and how that helped us supposed to take us to the next level in terms of our coaching journey of, of especially one of the things that the, the cover a lot of the, the Masters at Leeds Beckett is it's all understanding that who, what and how so do you understand the ones mm-hmm participants do you understand the the sport and how you and then how you can apply that through a variety of different you know on field optimizing that learning environment for for the best of your players and that and that was a huge uh, I mean I, I thought so, some of the modules I thought well, I went into the masters going oh I know rugby I've, I've coached rugby for 10 years I worked for the RFU I know the sport and then I sat down with Andy Abraham and did understanding and analyzing sports performance and my mind just went <laughs> I, just, I was just obviously scraping the, the the top of it and then when you actually go in and read a lot of the research papers which I hadn't done before because I'd very much been influenced by what I'd learned through the standard NGB courses where you don't tend to know where all that information's come from and that just expanded my thinking which which I think has definitely made me better on field because I've got more understanding of sort of touching on what you said before understand why I'm doing what I'm doing I think Chris I think that sorry to jump in I think the difference here and I think you're describing an excellent example of somebody who is taking on board or engaging with the academic experience but comes from, you know, is able to put it into practice because you're coming from that practice background. With that, when you do something like a master's degree, you have time for reflection, you know, so that you have time to study, you have time for reflection. And in most of our courses, it won't just be at Leeds, but, but I think we do that well. We invite you to make that jump between what we're talking about and your practice. You know, the whole, the whole course is built around, around that whole engagement with your practice. But imagine the amount of time that you've in that course, imagine the amount of time you've had for reflection, you know, for examining your own practice, for trying to find bridges between what you didn't know before and where, where you thought you knew before, and you start to build all this up. And that that's just that's an example of, of great academic practice. But not everybody who goes through coach education has that has had that time for reflection. Uh, because they're not all doing master's courses on a full or a part-time basis. So one of the one of the challenges for us is to is to help those who have not had that time to do the reflection. Particularly, I, I mean, I'll make a point in a minute, um, and I've just written down here to remind me to come back to it. Particularly for those who are engaged in what we would call early stages of coach education. You know, so early stage coach education, those who are doing level ones and level twos, which are the probably 70, 80% of, of those who are coaching out there with a qualification, how much time have they, have they had for reflection? How, what engagement have they had with the, the academic material that's out there? And how much personal practice have they got at that point, which allows them to situate the, the material in their own practice? So for them there are limitations on what is likely to be successful. For guys like you, you're sitting in the perfect position because you've got the time, the energy, the will, and the practice to put it all together. You know, so our challenge is to make that available for, for lots more people. And and the point I was going to make, well, I'll make it now in case I forget. <laughs> when we're evaluating how successful we are at this, I think one of the mistakes that we make 
is that we tend to put, we're very keen on putting evaluation in at every level. Now, of course, we should be putting evaluation in at every level. So if we're running a level one courses, it doesn't matter if it's what course it is, just call it for the sake of an easy argument. Level one courses and level two courses are these early introductory qualifications. We should be working out whether they're achieving what they're supposed to achieve. But what they're not supposed to achieve is the rounded, full, finished article as a sport coach. You, you don't do level one and level two courses and expect that that's it, I'm finished, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I'm now a sport coach who can go out there and do absolutely anything and everything. Perhaps when you get through the long journey that you've been through with coach education and experience and some further study, we get to a kind of stage where we say, now, now we've reached this, not an end point, but a stage that's far enough forward at that point, have we turned out good coaches? So I, I, a lot of my colleagues, which and I do criticise them for it, a lot of my colleagues are intent on looking at the content, the delivery of level one, level two type courses, often in football as it happens, and then saying, well, it's not as good as it could be. You know, they're not getting, they're not reflecting on this. They're not using academic knowledge. Uh, <clears throat> it's not practical enough. It's not based on their own practice. And all of those things are actually, I think, legitimate criticisms. But it's only a level one or a level two course. It's not the end point. It's a stage in this long journey of becoming finally an experienced and qualified coach. So we need to stop criticizing things for not being what they were never intended to be in the first place and see it as a stage on the, on the way forward. My view is it's it's the coaching profession. You and I, our, don't know what the word is, we are willing to accept at the minute that we call all these people coaches when, you know, they should all, I don't, there isn't a phrase nearly coaches or coaches on the way to becoming coaches or, you know, doing a valuable job but not at the end point of their education. It, you know, none of those would work. But it kind of describes where I think we are with that early stage coach education. And it's it's costly. It's the, the, the cost of it is largely falls on the, the, the coach who wants to be engaged. But most of those early stage coaches are not earning a living, they're volunteer coaches. Or they may be getting a wee bit of pay for teaching kids in maybe primary schools or you know schemes, local authority schemes and things. But the incentive to engage in in, a, in a, an intensive long-term coach education program isn't there if you don't have an occupation at the end of it. So when you put all that together, you think, well, we're, we're doing our best in coach. Well, we're, we're trying to do our best in coach education, but let's not be too critical of it unless, you know, without it being a chartered or licensed profession in which there are lots of occupation occupational opportunities, we can't expect people to, to be committing fully to, to really intensive programs. And so let's accept it as a stage on the journey in which we hope we can influence people to do a good job. And yes, we still need to infuse that early stage coach education with a bit more of what we know good principle and practices are from research and from study. But I don't think we do that by the job. You know, our coaches, 
you get a coach who has limited experience, an individual who has limited experience, wants to engage in sport, wants to be helpful, wants to work with young kids, and we want them to do it as well. We need them to do it. We need everybody to participate, to be more active. But we need to give them some security. So when you go on one of these early courses, we need to give them something that they can go and work with. Now, that then becomes criticised as the governing bodies telling you what to do. Well, yes, they're telling you what to do because you didn't know what to do beforehand. And asking you to reflect on it and be critical when it's the only time content has been delivered to you, that's asking too much. Let's be critical when we get to your stage because you've got, you've got, the, you've got the wherewithal to be critical. When you're going on a couple of weekends courses, We've got to give them the security of something to work with. And that means you have to do a bit of telling. You have to kind of say, this is the way we think it should be done. Now, let them then reflect and apply and become more engaged, but only as a process after experience. So I think we're, we're in danger, we, you know, we're, we're overcritical of this early stage where I think they are dependent learners. You, you, you know, and as you get to the stages that you guys are at, you become a more independent learner. But if we jump too soon to that point, the coach is then thinking, I, I'm not sure whether I'm doing the right thing here. I've, I don't think I've got any content because I've been told I'm just repeating what you know others are telling me to do. But I don't have anything else to, to fill it with. So we, we can be overcritical. I know I, I'm ranting a bit about coach education, but it's a good opportunity to, to put it into words. Well, I think, uh, I mean, touch on that, I mean, I've delivered a, a fair few N- NGB awards for the RFU. You're right, in terms of, like, a lot of the, the participants that you get on, and, on as the, to, to come on to learn, a lot of them are parents that have sort of been, they were the ones that were just willing to put their head above the parapet, I suppose, and take on that junior side because there was no other parents available to do it. And they might not necessarily have played the sport, therefore they're trying to, to learn the sport and then also learn... Um, the key principles of of some coaching behaviours, I suppose, as well. So there is a there is quite a lot within the three days of a of a level two or a level one to actually take in and then to apply to that level. You, you, I think the the point that you've made there around learn the information, start practicing, and then applying. I think is 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 good advice. I think to anyone that's 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 going on that coaching journey or especially starting that coaching journey is you know you, you've put that little bit more in, learn, listen to what people are telling you that they're experienced and then try it, practice it, and then reflect on it at that point as you're developing and go mm-hmm. back to, to different bits. Obviously, we, we wanted to, to really hone in on that that coaching environment and, and what that looks like. So on, on top of, sort of some of the stuff that you've sort of alluded to there is how can coaches in that, um, level that we've just discussed because that's what we really want to try and sort of get is well what advice would you give to them about how they can create environments that can allow their players to thrive one of my key messages is that there are very different domains uh, that coaches operate in so if you're operating in the high performance uh, let's just call it performance but if you're operating in performance to high performance domains where the expectations are higher um you're working with individuals who are already committed to the process and the commitment to the process means that they will they can be more intensively engaged 
and they will engage with the environment that you produce. So if you have high expectations um, and high demands in that environment, you're working with those who are already committed and see some reward at the end of it. So it may just be, as a sociologist would call it, delayed gratification. It just means I want to get better because I know that once I get better at the end, uh, you know, I'm going to I'm going to get some benefit because I'll play better. I'll be in a higher standard team. You know, I'll get higher prestige and status because I'll be successful. So once you get to that performance level, you're on a kind of an accelerator, and and you're still on. If you're still on the accelerator uh, or the, you often got the, the the escalator. If you're on the escalator that's taking you to the higher standards you're willing to stay on it and to do the hard work. That's because the rewards are there. The reward environment, as we jargonally call it, um, it, is something which you can engage with. Before you get to that stage, if you're working with, with um, in a, what I would call a more participation, children's often, usually children, but, but you can be adults as well, the level of reward there is more immediate. The level of reward is that I need to be able to enjoy myself because if I don't enjoy myself, I'm not coming back. So that immediately says to you, coaches in the performance domain can make can ask for higher expectations. They can ask for more commitment and what brackets we would just call can ask for harder work that may not have an immediate reward and may not actually be immediately enjoyable. <laughs> Um, because they might be doing some hard physical stuff that they're not actually at the end of it thinking that was great. I really enjoyed that. Whereas in the in the participation demand uh, domain, the coach has to work harder to create a, a, a an environment in which there is greater variety, there's greater immediate success, that that individuals can feel engaged. So that, you know, and, and I would go with a good deal of the athlete-centered um, approaches so that they feel more that they've got some say in how things are being done. I don't think we have to worry about that, to be honest, in the performance domain, because by that stage, athletes, coach performers in general, understand what's going on. So they know whether they've been asked to do something they don't really agree with or they don't like. And at that point, hopefully they'll say something. Yes, there is, we've had some very recent examples of high-performance environments that have gone, what we might say, over the top um, to the stage of harassment, um, you know, tension, pressure, uh, over-pressuring athletes in terms of expectations and lifestyle. But generally speaking, athletes at that stage know when they need to say something, and probably most coaches, I'd like to think, would be receptive to the athlete saying, maybe we should try that. Maybe it's because I'm a team sport person, largely, you know, and you do engage. You have to because they're out there doing it and you can't tell always exactly what's going on. So just as a starter, I see that there are different domains and that the environment for each of them has to be, very, will be, it's not a case of has to be, will be very different. It's, it's largely an age thing, but it's a level and standards and stages type thing. The the I, I give an example often of, how do you put it? Once you're off the escalator, you might still be participating, but you know that you're not like you're not on the journey to an Olympic place. You're not on the journey to a professional contract. You, you know, you're not going to be playing in the highest league in the country, but you're still participating and you want to participate. That kind of engagement brings it closer. And that probably, if I'm being very generalized here, 
that's the kind of older teenager, young adult into older adult who's probably participating a couple of times a week and playing at the weekends. That kind of engagement in sport. Still committed, got a coach, have objectives, trying to be successful competitively, but they're not on that escalator to the top. They are, they fall into a, that kind of adult domain where you still have to have a kind of immediate enjoyment. And I, the example I use in my over 40s football team that I've been playing in for, for rather too many years, um, that very, lots of uh, ex-pros, very, very committed, very aggressive, you know, very competitive, but it has to be enjoyable because at that point it's for immediate satisfaction. You know, they want a bit of success, some of them, but it's immediate satisfaction. So we have to break into the domains and then talk about what kind of environment fits those domains. What kind of expectations do you have if you're working with young kids once a week for 40 minutes? What, what would be suitable for them? What would be suitable for the young adults who are 15, 16, 17, who are still hoping in that, what we often call a kind of talent development phase in there, to progress to still high-performance sport? And then, of course, once you get to a more adult domain, there are those who are in that high-performance elite environment. They have an entirely different environment. And you still have adults who are recreating in essence, but may, may be coach dependent. They may, you know, all the team sports may well have a coach, but they're not really high performance athletes at that point. We maybe just call it athlete participation, eh, sorry, adult participation. So my starting point is, and you can take it where you want, each of those has a different environment. And the coach is largely responsible for the the nature of that environment, but maybe not always responsible for the resources uh, in that environment. No, I think yeah, I think that probably links quite quite well onto what we discussed in season one. And and you know, the first role of a coach whenever going into a, a new environment is, is first of all is to understand who is it you're coaching, who are the participants, what are they, what they wanting from you as a coach. But then also, like you said, they're pairing that with the domain, right? I've got a group, I've got a group of um, eighteen to forty-four-year-olds in an adult participation environment here, but they all want to to win and succeed. But like, you know, am I going to have I got the resources to make it a high-performance environment? No. But um, I think what's you know what what we're trying to get at in this season is is are there aspects from from that top area in which a lot of the a lot of the literature and a lot of the podcasts and books that you can buy on the internet um, are there aspects from that that we can apply to this to this to this lower level maybe in the talent identification and and, and grassroots adult participation level so what, what what would you say were the key the key things that you know could be applied to to each one of the different domains that you have just outlined there I could probably come up with goodness knows how many if I if I just if I think about it for a little while and then start to try and go through it. Let me start with expectations, because just as you've described it, Alison, that, that that you if you if you start with knowing the adults, sorry, knowing the not the adults, knowing the participants, um, knowing the area they're working in, understanding what it is they're trying to achieve, what they want out of it but also then understanding the context in which you're working. 
then that begins, as you say that, you begin to then say, well, what is it I am, I am either able to or want to do in that context? So that you then start thinking in terms of that sets the limits of your expectations. Now, that's not me saying don't have higher expectations, don't constantly aim to be the best. Everybody should be aiming to, to, you know, to do as well as they can and to be the best. But there will be some situations in which, for example, if, if I, I give this example of, uh, from my own experience, if you're working twice a week on a, in a team context and individuals may be working on their own, doing physical stuff um, or other stuff as well, but but largely the team would be coming together on a couple of occasions a week. That does limit what you might achieve over a long period of time. Um, that, that's very different from those who are working twice a day on a full-time basis or three times a day on a full-time basis. So your twice a week kind of sets some limits. So as, as adult participants who are still wanting to be kind of moving towards success in this performance field, you start by saying, well, could it be three days a week, three times a week? Could we find another evening? Could we could we make it Sunday, Tuesday, Thursday? Could we find two mornings a week when most of you could get to this facility and we could work for an hour before eight o'clock? which I have tried with, with a team and my team in the, in the past. Now, we could only get about five or six people there out of, say, 12 or 14. But it meant that we got lots more individual attention. You know, I could work with an individual and say, this morning we're only going to work with this guy. We're going to work on the following. This is my volleyball hands. We're only going to work on the following. And the others who are there are going to help me work with this individual because I need people to do this, this, and this. And so expectations that the context has limits, but you might you might just test those limits. Could we do an extra half hour? Could we be working for two and a half hours instead of two hours? Could we start half an hour earlier? <laughs> Could we leave the warm-up and some of these exercises to somebody else and you come in and do the two hours that you want you know to do so that we're not spending the first bit doing something that's it's not unproductive, but it, you know, and, 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 and I can hear Andy somebody listening to this saying, yeah, but wait a minute, the warm-up should be relevant to what you're doing. I know, but I'm just trying to expand the time that we're engaging in, in something purposeful. So you have some potential for, for setting the, the barriers. Now, they're not barriers. You know, let's just call it setting the expectations of, say, how intensively can we work? What level of commitment can we push towards? You know that at the highest performance, that it's full-time. So if you're not full-time, you're immediately thinking, well, can I be doing the same? Can I set some things that look like what the full-timers are doing? Well, possibly. So, for example, how engaged are you in the technical aspects of your performance. So if you're a full-time athlete in the high-performance arena and we've got the Olympics going on, they are constantly engaged in the technical aspects of the sport. They don't think about anything else. You know, technical just doesn't mean technique. It means everything from knowledge about training loads to 
equipment to, you know, those technical, literally physical resources, as well as the individual's technical resources, everything from psychology to emotion to etc. So that total technical immersion that you get in a high performance arena, what's it like in, in the adult participation one? Could we, would there be enough reward environment to ask people to engage a little bit more in the technical aspects of what they're doing? Maybe, and this is where I'm, maybe see where I'm going. If we're doing this with the younger, the middle age teenager, the 14, 15, 16-year-old, and then we're doing it with the 17, 18, 19-year-old, are we willing to say this technical immersion has to take you away a little bit from immediate competitive success? We have to stop thinking at that age the environment is not one of immediate success. The environment is one of technical preparation for future performance. Now, that in the high performance arena, you match the two because you can't ignore performance success or you wouldn't be in that area arena in the first place. Um, but further down, if we call it down the tree, but, but in earlier stages, you get the opportunity in your environment to say what is needed to get us to the next stage and still be on the escalator. And it may well be that it's a greater intensity of technical engagement with longer term goals rather than short immediate term goals. And then if you then start to say, well, it's part of that environment, the Olympic athlete has very, very individual goals, has very individual targets, has a, a program that's targeted only to them. So when you move to the to the younger teenager, the older teenager on the escalator, have they got equal individual attention? Have they got individual goals and individual programs, uh, performance plans? Not always, but they could have. Now, what you're getting then is you're getting you're asking the coach to work harder. <laughs> You're asking the coach to work harder in technical stuff, to work harder on individual attention, to work harder on testing, evaluation all the time, always knowing where we are, and a wee bit working with you know lifestyle. So the, the Olympic athlete, and we're just using that because Olympics are on, the Olympic athlete has a managed lifestyle. If you're a critical sociologist, you might say it's over managed lifestyle um, you know the, 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 those who write about surveillance and you know over engagement with their personal lives but but mostly those have decided that it's worth athletes have decided it's worth doing for the reward so in terms of that at, well we're, at that point we're, we're beginning to talk about attitude and expectations of hard work what what can we expect at an earlier stage compared to what the Olympic Athletes are doing. I lost my train there. What was I going to say about the Olympic athletes? Oh, lifestyle, lifestyle. The um, and <laughs> I got lost somewhere. Their lifestyle is entirely managed. To what extent can you, as a coach, in the environment that you are creating, whether it's with young kids or the emerging athletes or adults, to what extent can you 
can you expect their lifestyles to be purposefully linked to their engagement in sport? What can you ask them to do? Can you ask them to stay on at school? Can you ask them to go to particular universities? Can you ask them to move house, to come to such and such? Can you ask them to leave this club and go to another club because the coach is better or they've got more money or they're engaged in better level of competition? Um, can you ask them to think in terms of their diet, their sleep patterns, their study patterns? What, to what extent can you begin to con control? Now, I don't like the use of the word control there. I just don't have another quite, no, call it managed. But to what extent can you begin to shape? Aha, I found a good one. To, to what extent can you shape the environment and the expectations of lifestyle to something that's going to be positive towards better performance? And we know what it's possible, but what's possible over in this hand is, is the full-time athlete with an entirely managed lifestyle and not unlimited resources, but but getting towards that in some for Olympic athletes, getting towards that. So on this other hand, with the emerging athletes and those who are less committed because of the reward environment, how much of that lifestyle management, how much of that technical immersion, how much of that looking to the future rather than absolutely immediate success, how much of that can you impose? And again, I don't like the word impose, so don't jump on me for that. But how much can you use to engage in the better environment? And how much can it go even further down to the point at which you get you start to teach young kids? But you know that you want to give them success. They've got to enjoy it. They want to play games. And yet you're thinking to yourself, I really need to sort out the technique at this point because it's going to be really beneficial for later. But they don't want their technique sorted out at that point. They want to play with the ball. They, they want to do something else. So it's not an easy job. But, you know, the, is there a diffusion of environment and expectations all the way down the line? I would actually like to argue that the really good, high-quality children's coach is not simply diffusing Olympic expectations. They are looking to see the, the highest quality environment that they can produce. And it doesn't necessarily match or um, have the characteristics of the high performance domain it looks a bit different if you were if you were if you were in charge of the system so if you were in charge of the RFU or the FA or cricket or volleyball or lacrosse or something else you'd actually be still saying well what little bits of influence could we have by these early stages where we could just about be thinking of some of it as a preparation for the next environment up and then the next one up and then the next one up. It's easy with the young adults because by that time they've become, they understand commitment at that stage to the next stage. And you kind of can say to them, we need to spend a bit more time like this. We, we, we need to think a bit more clearly about our diet and about, hydration, uh, you know, for training sessions even and things. You see, because this is good practice and they will understand it's good practice. Um, so I think in the, the, those middle years you can and, and into the late teens, early adults, 
you can begin to mimic high performance, but you still got to understand that it, it, it may not be appropriate to simply say, this is what they are doing. I'm going to do it here. But set high standards. Focus on technical stuff. Look at reward effort and long-term engagement rather than immediate success. Pick your talent based on what they are going to be able to do in the future, not what you need them to do now to make your team better. Uh, you know, don't get, you know, the, the big guy who you think, well, he's going to be in the second row because we need him in the second row. He might be a better winger eventually if, I, if I'm looking at the lines. Um, so there's all sorts of little bits and pieces like that where you can think of a future for these athletes by bringing in some expectations that are about high-performance sport, but you can't go overboard because you haven't got resources, you haven't got the intensity of commitment, and and perhaps we don't want to at that stage. Perhaps I can hear the you know athlete-centred saying, for some it's obvious, but for others, the the, the the percentage of them who will move on is is probably fairly small. Um, so we should be thinking about all those others as well, um, for whom it will be different. Chris looks like he's got a question in mind. I can see it. No, I think you've. Uh, there's just so many uh, great points there, John, and uh, it. <laughs> It does sort of link into some stuff that we spoke about in season one with Steve McKeown. We had him on sort of talking around this this idea of um, how we can support coaches with building a like a curriculum or a syllabus and what we need to work on. And one of the things Steve sort of touched on was that if you're working within that talent development, I suppose, or that young adult age group, we're, we're kind of... <laughs> one of our focuses should be really on how are we coaching the game and what it's going to look like in the future. So are we giving them the necessary skills to be able to walk into another environment, to be able to to adapt and work to where the game is at at that point? And and, and that and I know a few coaches that have said to me afterwards that, that that actually really kind of sort of hit home with them a little bit, that it goes, well, yeah, I never thought about that. I've always coached it. Well, what does the game look like now? Well, actually, if I've got a, a 15-year-old, what they're going to be coming through 18, 19 into first-team rugby. What's that going to look like then? What technique is, is sort of you described it as then that they need to have when they get to that point? And and is it, another key point, I think, what you said, that it, it comes down to balance because especially when you're with that that young adult area, you if you're at a club coach, then... Not everyone has that ambition to go on to push it. Some selection of players in your group will, and they want to push it. So you need to give them that experience. But then also you've got to still motivate them, other players, to still play the game long-term anyway, because that is probably what the future of your club is going to be. They're the ones that are going to come back and play when they've been to college or university and come back to the area. They're going to go back to the club that they've been at to play there. So I think there's there's lots of sort of, I think, key bits there that, that coaches will be able to take away from that. What came out from what you're saying there is, and I'd I'd written it down before here, is I think there is a little bit of a difference between team sports and individual sports uh, in terms of coaching. Um, I've I've coached individual, I've coached athletes, but largely I've worked for team sports. Um, And it just, you know, when I speak to individual coaches, they say, "How how can you work with 
15 people or 30 people. You know, how, how can you work with that? You know, he said, you know, I can remember a, a coach of Olympic sprinters saying to me, I can barely work with two. Um, you know, I'm not sure I've actually got the time and the, the mental capacity um, to actually work with two athletes. One would be better. And, and I said, well, probably, um, but that's not how team sports work. So you do have that issue of what's the preparation for in, in, in team systems or beginnings of individual technical capacities and, and physical capacities and specialization. So you end up having to juggle the specialization with now and the future, you know, and the, you can you remember all the, you know, should we give everybody the chance to be doing everything or should we be having specialist specialization much earlier? And some people arguing, well, we specialize much earlier, they'll be ready to do this and we'll see a bigger gain sooner. Well, maybe, perhaps, but we might also get a burnout earlier and, we, and they might leave because they eventually hit a barrier that, you know, they can't get over. But you go for the lack of specialization, a more general development. And I can think of a, a recent book that I co-authored with a volleyball guy um, who's also a Leeds MSc graduate, Tommy Downs, um, Scottish volleyball coach, um, where the emphasis should be on movement and rhythm. So that if you emphasize that early on and all the way through your, your coaching, the athletes and players are in a better position to adapt to what's required later. Their movement skills are good enough to cope with whatever the demands or will gradually become uh, better able to deal with the demands as, as they, they move through. So for, for individual, um, for, for team sport coaches, this tension between a bit of success now, <laughs> you know, doing what you can with the athletes as they currently do it, working on systems of play that, that would give immediate success now rather than prepare people for the future, um, specialising early or working on basic concepts. These are all, these, there's no, I don't think there's absolute answers to these, but that's why coaches get paid the big bucks. <laughs> it's, it's the tension um, of getting that right. And perhaps better coaches get it right more often. Perhaps coaches who are less effective don't get it right quite so often. But I don't have it. I mean, that's speculation. I don't, you know, I can't give you the, the figures. I do think if you can convince the early stage athlete to have an element of the future in, in the environment that they work in and to focus very much on what you would call basic skills, which are largely to do with movement. Um, if you can, as a preparation for being able to do something later, if you can work on that, and almost what you would say, I'm sure you've come across this in your courses, if you can almost bring adult learning principles a little bit further down the line. So some adult learning principles like understanding why you're doing things, engaging with the athletes so they know exactly what it is you're trying to achieve and why it's relevant to them. Why are we doing this? Because this will make you better. It won't get you to hit the ball harder at this minute, 
<laughs> but it will help you to be in the right position to edit harder in the future. So you that notion of understanding and then engage them in the discussion. One of the adult learning principles is that the, you, you learn better if you verbalize things. So if you don't speak to the athletes and you don't engage them in talking about what it is you're doing, you can't really be sure that they are taking this in. Now, I don't mean taking it in as in only doing what you want them to engage with it, but they can't engage with it unless you verbalize it with them. And then you get to the stage of they begin to understand why they're doing things and they can begin to self-evaluate whether they're achieving things. But that's it's hard work. You know, that, that's not just turning up and doing a warm-up and doing a couple of drills and then putting it into a small-sided game. <laughs> that's not what high-quality coaching perhaps looks like. As soon as we get into all the things we're talking about here, it is part of the environment. You know, the, 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 the discussion, maybe the discussion happens before the training session and after the training session, but it's considered to be part of it. It's not a turn up and stay if you like. It's now we have to talk about what we did. Now we have to talk about how that's going to help us play the next game. What, what should, you know, how, how, and I'm looking at you, Chris, going, you, you are in my session. How has what we've done today helped you for next time? And you're hoping he's not going to say, well, I've no idea. Because that the explanation for all of that was already there. The coach wasn't just pulling the drill out. The coach was already showing how this drill was meant to work on a particular aspect of something. And it might just have been some kind of coordination between people rather than a technical thing, you know, more to do with individual decision-making. Um, but you have to engage with the athlete. And therefore... All of what we are talking about here is making the coach's job more demanding, which is a pity, therefore, that we're not a fully paid profession, that everybody's getting paid more. Well, yeah. I reckon I had quite a few of them uh, them blank faces in my early coaching days, definitely. There's a few people that can support that as well. <laughs> early coaching days. Uh, it, it's not. Um, it's not. It's. It's not dissimilar to the blank faces you see in a in a in a room of students um, when you're talking about something. Yes, I think that's. You know, it's a hard. I guess it's. Yeah, that's probably the hardest thing. One of the hardest things for a coach who's who's on this journey, on the escalator to, to uh, on their progression, is is getting that balance. And um, I think I think what we're seeing over. I think I think since Chris and I started this podcast, um, I think. I think we're starting to see that more coaches are, are willing to engage within this within this journey, within trying to adapt their coaching to to you know to, to both better themselves as, as coaches, but also create stronger environments for their players. Um, you know, I think, but unfortunately, it goes back to you know, what we were discussing earlier: those expectations. You know, do we have the time? Do, do, do these you know participant adult participation or or, or, or child coaches you know, have the time to be able to get those reflections in and to get those additional discussions and I think that's I think at the moment that seems to be the the, the largest limiting factor um, which you know is, 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 is you know, can be quite frustrating um, but I think I think I think overall I think what I'm witnessing is that is that more and more coaches especially at the lower levels are starting to engage which I think can only be a positive. Well, I think in the higher, you know, the kind of stuff that Sergio has been doing and, and you're looking at the coach, coaches 
athletes at the higher level they want that they want individual attention they want they want the coaches in that environment to be working with them for everything to be tailored to to their needs um which is perfectly reasonable um again quite different team and individual expectations because when you get to the team sport and particularly at the higher level um you it's it's in my mind here that the individual sports at the higher level often are criticized um, that's where the the notions of harassment and i'm just using abuse in its more general sense meaning demanding too much um and constantly assessing and cutting people from squads you know and you know the the stress the shouting the stress that you're not achieving that negative negative environment in which you achieve or you're out um that often happens in in i think one of my arguments might be in more individual sports the team sports are, because the, there's more variety there there's more variation and there's also a, a greater fluctuation in terms of performance i think um you don't want it but but i think there is a different sense of demands so when you work with an individual for example and I, and I, i'm arguing against myself now i was going to say with with the team sport you're const- a coach is constantly selecting i've been there you know i've i've been at european things and as a player and a coach and i've been in the world student games several times picking teams you know telling people they're not in the squad they're not travelling and then when you get there here's the first six and this you know number 12 hasn't been on the court hardly at all but it's halfway around the world <laughs> well but but having been spoken to understands that that they're in a supportive role they understand why they're not as good as somebody else who's there but they understand they've got a role to play because they're needed to do this this and this so the, the team sport person needs to be supportive have high expectations be critical but positively critical rather than a constant negative why things are not happening but actually that what we've learned from some of the 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 late the, you know the, the investigations that have been going on to some uk sports trying not to mention cycling and swimming and rowing and all of these other um is that individually there has been that same selection um perform or you're out type tension within squads so you know you you match up to this you match up to the next evaluation you match up to next month's this you're in the first six in the in the world or you're out the squad um you know and your money will therefore be reduced you won't be getting your olympic allowance you won't be getting your uk podium money you'll be out so at that really high level that i i'm i'm not i've never been at that really high olympic level it just seems to me that you with performance directors in particular rather than just coaches but performance directors are largely the ones who are making the decisions about who's in and who's out um and but maybe in the team sports it's it's closer to the coach the head coach being the person that's that's doing that um but this constant tension between trying to do the best for the individual but having in mind that uk sport has said if we don't win you get no money and and so 
coaches are in this a rock and a hard place. Um, it's very difficult not to be. I, I, I put this down in some notes that I sent you. It's very difficult not to be successful when you're a head coach at Olympic level because you've got all the best athletes. <laughs> so, you know, you're going to win medals. You're going to be successful. You're going to be in the top 20 in the world because all of these athletes have been sent to work with you. They were produced somewhere else. And hopefully you might make them better, but at least you will get them to an appropriate level of readiness to win the medals that you're hoping they're, they're going to win. So this trying to work out whether somebody's doing a good job at this highest level is actually quite it's quite difficult. Um, and in team sports, there's lots of examples of coaches who were by their athletes not considered to be particularly supportive um, and to be rather more negative than positive uh, and to be more, as we would put it, shouty than something else. But their athletes succeeded. Were the athletes happy? Well, they were when they won. Um, they weren't happy when they didn't. Um, they always like supportive coaches when they win things and they don't like coaches who are perceived to be negative when they don't win things. It, it's, 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 these things are just not clear cut, I think is what I was trying to put across in the, you know, some, some notes. But anyway, I'm, I feel myself rambling yet again. <laughs> not at all done. Uh, it's fascinating. I just want to touch on what you've just said though. Um, but before we wrap up around the importance of behaviours and, and how behaviours play a role in the environment that we actually have with players. Um, but what advice would you give to coaches around being aware of behaviours and the impact that they can have on the actual environment of, of the, for, our, for the environments that we're trying to create? Mm -hmm. I think that the answer is very simple and it would go back to the lectures you've had from Andy or Bob or somebody else on the Masters programme where we have to understand what the sport is about or technical demands. You, you cannot be at a higher level without being immersed in the technical stuff. Um, but you have to understand the athlete um, and that means working at that constantly to understand what they what they need um, and to work out whether it's actually what they think they need and you know you negotiate between because you have some expertise there you will have expertise but the third bit of the triangle is your own behavior and practice um, and would it be fair to say that we do sometimes, realize that the technical stuff needs to be dealt with because we wouldn't argue, you know, there would be no, not much argument. I would argue that we're not quite as intensively engaged in the technical stuff as we might be, but but I think we understand we should be. I think we now are convinced that we under, have to understand the athletes and their needs and their, you know, and be individual where we can and work with them. I'm not so quite so sure that that third strand um, of understanding our own behaviours and our own practices um, is our own non-verbal behaviour. You know, our own, for what, you know, simple things like having favourites. Uh, you know, not so much having favourites, but giving more attention to some than, than to others. Um, of uh, finding faults rather than dealing with the cause 
So if you think of symptoms and, and, and you know, faults, what is it that's causing something to go wrong? Well, don't focus on the bit that's wrong. Focus on the bit that was causing it to be wrong. And it might well be, you know, in my world, just something to do with movement, timing, ball flight, etc. It's not how they actually hit it. It's something else that's causing these these problems. So if if you are constantly negative or appearing to be constantly negative because you're always looking at the fault and saying, we've got to get rid of this fault. Um, well, no, we're going to do lots more work on this basic bit here. Um, and positively, we're going to increase. That will, in time, make the performance better. You don't need to focus on making it better. It will happen if you're positive about what you're doing. So this notion of being positive rather than negative, of not looking at faults, but looking at the causes and the basic things that need to be done to remedy them, um, of trying to work to a performance plan that the, that the athlete has bought into. So if the athlete has bought into this, you can engage in a conversation that's already got some boundaries. You know, so you don't suddenly criticise them. You're, you're, your evaluation is based on what they've already agreed are good objectives that we're trying to achieve. Um, so you get this this sense of everything is not everything is positive. If something's going wrong, if somebody's attitude isn't quite what you think it needs to be for the environment they're in, then you have to say so. You ha- you have to be you know there has to be a situation in which it's acceptable for you to to, to criticise, but you can't criticise all the time if you're expecting to to, to motivate people. So. Set really high standards for your own practice. You cannot imagine a coach not being prepared, can you? Well, yes, we can, because because it happens. But what I'm saying is, in setting that we've talked for nearly an hour about having high expectations of athletes and the environment and what we can expect, you have to set those high expectations for yourself. And that means being up to date. It means having good plans in place. It means always being prepared. It means being there first and leaving last. It means working with individuals and teams about their expectations, about being positive. It means evaluating a lot because it's only based on the evaluation that you can talk to the athletes about what's being achieved and what's not being achieved. But it should be on the basis of objectives and goals and plans that they've already bought into so and and you know the odd blow up you know i mean i've fallen off the bench on an international a couple of times when you can't understand why somebody's done something you know um but you're dealing with adults in that environment they kind of understand that you have frustrations as well they have frustrations but they understand that you have the frustrations as well but you've got to deal with it better. You're allowed to have frustrations. You're allowed to be real, but you have to be able to deal with it in that, you know, that adult high quality manner. Um, so I'm just describing a person who has all these qualities, and the answer is you have to keep working till you're up to date. You're well prepared. Your behaviour is good. You work with the athletes as individuals and you get on with 
you know, if you're imagining the diagrams you've seen round the outside are all these stakeholders that you're that you're working with as well. Um, and so, yes, you 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 work with the stakeholders as well. But just just remembering, if you can just get across to coaches to remember that they are one end of a triangle, one pointy bit of a triangle, um, and that focusing on the other two isn't enough. You have to say, is there's a wonderful, I know I, I will, I promise I'll stop in a minute if I need to stop, um, that when we're doing um, decision-making uh, and uh, stuff for coaches, um, one of the questions you, you ask yourself all the time is, is what I'm doing still contributing to the main goals that, that we've set? So the co- coaches, in terms of their own behaviour and practice, can be self-evaluative probably a bit more than they are. And that general question that you can ask yourself nearly always is, is what I'm doing contributing to the goals that we've set? Is the, excuse me, is the practices, the drills and the competitions that we've set up, are they contributing to the goals? Is my current behaviour contributing to the welfare of the athletes? as well as their progression. So am I am I a positive influence on all of this? Or is, any, is there anything I'm doing, for example, by not being up to date, by not being well prepared, etc.? Is, is there anything I'm doing that's not adding to the positive nature of the environment? Now, you know, everything from dress to punctuality to being able to have things that you can say, this is what, you know, not the old typical stereotypical fag packet or making it up as you go along. Are you a barrier or are you a positive end of the of the triangle? And that self-evaluation is something we could all do more often. I'm agree. I'm not just looking at you, Chris, they're saying it's you. I'm, you is... All coaches there. I think that, and that, I think that's an absolutely great message to 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 sort of end the discussion on. John, um, it's been absolutely fascinating having you on, and I, I probably could have gone for a, another hour chatting to you about all sorts of other stuff. And, you know, we might look to tr- maybe try and get you on again to chat about something else because I think there's been a you lot. you already appreciate that you can't stop me once I've started, so <laughs> I'll be I'll be happy to come and talk at some future time. Whatever it is you want me to talk about, I'll turn it around to what I want to talk about anyway. So that's fine. No, it's fascinating, John. Uh, thanks again for giving up your time. Uh, it's really appreciated. No My pleasure. So, Harrison, uh, a fascinating chat there with Professor John Lyle. Um, but what were your initial thoughts? It was uh, was a few weeks ago. Yes. Yeah, no, it's, um, well, he's an interesting. He is a very interesting bloke, isn't he? And he's got a... Um, Got a lot of youth, got a lot of knowledge around around coaching, and, and like, like 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 you said in the intro, it's you know I don't think you and I have ever written a piece of academic work for our masters without referencing a John Lyle book. 
Yeah. No, I, I, on that, you know, now a pre-chat with Richard Smith. I know he's getting a lot of, uh, he gets a lot of mentions after his episode, but actually when, when we were chatting to Richard, we, we mentioned that we we, we, did, we interviewed John as part of this sort of process. And he actually said that a lot of John's stuff had sort of been used and shaped for the high-performance sport strategy that New Zealand occupied while Richard was in the job. And that, that's sort of the, the level of, um, I'm trying to think of the word that I'm using for, credibility that John has within the area um, and, and I think it was just a brilliant chat in terms of relating it back to coaching environment and I think the, the key bit that John I and mean, very much what John even said it himself during the episode is one of his key areas of research is around understanding your domain which is important and it's something that we've preached a lot especially in season one around you know understanding the who and then what works for who in what circumstance and why and I think that was clear in the, the chat that we had with John yeah I think that chat with John I think it links it all in terms of in terms of covering that as, as environment that you know, we can understand our, we can understand who we're coaching but like you've got to understand where they where they kind of sit and why they're there so you know for um, you know if you're coaching under, under fives under sixes the sevens that kind of that kind of really low it's you know with the fundamental stuff fundamental movement stuff we spoke around in in season one episode two with with christian sharples you know it's you know it's teaching them how to you know the core movement skills and then it then it's layering on and actually understanding what your role is within that domain is is so important and actually coaching is different at each one of those domains along along the chain to hopefully for some some of these athletes you know, top tier, top tier rugby union, and you know, I think I think you and I are both in agreement that they're all as important as as the last. You know, so the players that Eddie Jones is coaching for England at the top, they wouldn't be there for, if it wasn't for their well, if they started at under sevens and under eights, it wouldn't it wouldn't be there for the coaches that they had out on a cold on a cold Sunday morning with with a with a with you know with a cold cup of tea that's you know, that's gone. So you know everyone has got an important role within the process and understanding that domain and knowing that if you own the domain, if you take control of the environment and the domain that you're in, then you know you are opening the doors for these players to, to progress on nicely going forward. Definitely. I think the, the reason we've we've sort of added the bit in with John on this in terms of this the serial winning and what we can learn from that is to kind of take right, we took all this stuff with Alison a couple of weeks ago where, you know, the, the detail that we spoke around about the environment that you create, the type of sessions that you want and um, the, the Ringelman effect, things like that. <clears throat> but actually to back that up, the whole process of why we've done this is, well, what can we learn from that? And I think what, what has been a positive for me sort of listening back was the chat we had with John says, well, actually, yes, that's important, but how does that work with who you're working with? And, and I think that's where you can take the bits from John's episode and align it to how you create the best environment for your participants. Because if we get that environment right, and then we mix that a little bit with the stuff that we spoke about with Richard around people, you're going to get better player experience because more people are playing sport and more people will then filter through to being more active in the future. And I think that if you're a volunteer coach which John touched on in the chat as well around the coach education and your level if you're just a volunteer coach that's put your hand up and said that you're willing to do it you know 1% of that will probably make it to 
if that will make it to the elite element of the game. If you're giving them that high quality experience, it's going to keep them active in later life and go through and transition into a senior rugby or senior football, senior hockey player, then that's how you incorporate all the bits that we spoke about so far. And I think that's why it's key to have John's episode in now. Uh, 100%. 100%. And like, you know, like I said, and not what you just said there, it's about recognising that you know coaches who who do coach the fundamental movement schools at the start are you know are excellent coaches with the right when they get when they have and when they've got the right material and they understand what their domain is you know and then it's I know it's it looks completely different to what an Eddie Jones is doing at the top but you know, once it's, it's understanding that what he's got up there and, and what he's having to do is, is is it's just different. It's just different compartments. And then you know, the question is, and the, the challenge I'm, you know, you and I could challenge is, you know, would Eddie Jones be able to coach those fundamental fundamental movement skills kind of sessions to lower age groups as well as someone who does it week in week out? The answer is probably probably no. Uh, well, I'll give Eddie the benefit of the PE teacher back in a later life before he uh, he went into elite rugby. So he might be an example, but I know where you're coming from. The, the, you know, you're being pedantic about it. He, he, you know, there's probably others that you're right have just been that much in a high performance environment for that long that can't adapt the skills moving forward. Um, but that was a good chat with you. I think there's a lot of things that coaches can can take away from that. I know. I totally agree. I totally agree. And Will you be doing interviews from the Stalkerbird more often? Well, hopefully the Wi-Fi will be sorted um, and I get into a um, into a, in, into a proper office. Uh, better than being in your bedroom. Um, right, another week. So halfway through this series now, and already there's there's loads to that I've I've taken away from it. Um, hopefully, I mean the feedback that we're getting so far is really good on social media. There's a lot of people benefit from it, so. Um, Keep, keep sending us your feedback we're, we're in the process of putting together season three so if you've got any ideas feel free to uh, send them across and we can uh, we can see what we've put together um, back in two weeks with our next episode uh, Charlie's got all of our social media details at the end and we will see you next time cheers for listening don't forget to join in the discussion at Big Breakdown HQ on Twitter Facebook and Instagram